enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this episode is with Julie Sapper. Julie is helping runners of all shapes and sizes do exactly that through her coaching and her resources through Run Faster, Run Farther. And not only that, Julie has just experienced what so many of us experience, and that is coming back from an injury and doing so in a way that allows you to kind of capitalize on the work that you were trying to do prior to getting injured. For her, that involved qualifying for the Boston Marathon, which she had done numerous times in the past, but this time she had an injury that led to a cycle that was going to make it very difficult to do just that. So we learned all about not only what she was able to do to prepare herself for a last chance Boston qualifying marathon two weeks ago, but what we can learn from her uh, basically her journey and put it into our own lives. So I was really excited to get Julie on the show to talk at length about this process and what, again, what we can all learn from it, because why not? Why not take, um, you know, lessons from somebody who has gone through this so many times, especially an experienced runner and coach like Julie Sapper. So here's my conversation with her, Julie Sapper. Hello, Julie, and welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'll tell you what, you know, you're, you're someone who, you know, we've kind of shot messages back and forth for a while. And then recently, you've gone through an experience that I think a lot of people have had some, you know, some knowledge of, and that is coming back from injury after, you know, having a, a huge and monumental training cycle, and then seeing it kind of crumble before your eyes, and then having to pick up the pieces after the fact. And then, boy, did you ever... Um, you just kicked butt in Geneva, Illinois, at the last chance to beat Q.2 Marathon. Um, so first of all, congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm really excited and I'm really happy to share um, what happened and I hope it will help others. Right. So first of all, let's just let's just lay out so, some things before we get started. You are a highly accomplished runner. You you know qualified for the Boston Marathon a number of times. You've been nominated for the best you know, master's runner in Montgomery County where you live and, and other things. So you are an established runner. And in addition to that, you also are the co-founder and you co-run um, Run Faster, Run Farther. And is that is that the correct name? It's uh, Run Farther and Faster. And um, I own it with my, my partner, Lisa Reichman, and we coach runners uh, all over the area and also virtually. And we've been doing it for the past 10 years. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, you've built such a nice community within that group. Um, I know a lot of people use social media to kind of connect and share information and do all of that. And boy, I'll tell you, especially on Facebook, it seems like you, uh, you know, you and Lisa have really done such a good job with um, just kind of connecting with so many people, not only in person, because I know that, you know, unlike a lot of coaching platforms now, it can be kind of remote and digital. You kind of have that, that hybrid model where you have boots on the ground in your local community, but you also have that digital outreach as well. Yeah. And it, it really happened organically because we really started out uh, just in our community. But as the technology developed over the past 10 years, we headed toward a virtual model as well. But it's it's so important to us to be able to connect personally with people as well. And we never want to give that up. So 
I guess I like how you say hybrid. Sure. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then and, then, and speaking of like the, the ironies of all ironies, last year you and Lisa started a podcast and you'd had this great series of kind of like prepping for Boston. And then wouldn't you know it, six weeks out from Boston, you come down with an injury. What was that like to like simultaneously have this your own your own personal buildup, which was going well, and you can share the details about how that was going, but then also to be like so involved with other people's preparation, then all to see it all kind of unravel at the last minute. That is a great question. And I I really appreciate you asking that because first of all, that's exactly what happened. It was ironic. We had started this podcast and it was really exciting to be able to dig deep with um, different guests only talking about the Boston Marathon while Lisa and I simultaneously shared our training with listeners, the, the one listener we had or whomever was listening. And it was it was it was really hard because suddenly out of the blue, um, I was on a training run and my knee buckled and that had never happened to me before. And immediately I got myself an appointment with an orthopedist, whoever was available and begged for an MRI because I was six weeks out from Boston and I didn't want to continue running on this. And um, the MRI revealed that I had a meniscus tear. And I, I really, this was completely unfamiliar territory for me. I've never had a knee issue before. And it was devastating because I was so close to race day at that point, six weeks out. I had had a great training cycle. But then there was this other layer, which was we have runners, we coach, we have this podcast. And I felt this sense of embarrassment. Like here I am putting myself out there, talking about my training. And I had run Boston 10 times previously, and Lisa and I had all of our plans in place, and all of a sudden I got injured. And I was trying to be really stoic about it, but initially it was it was really hard for me emotionally because I had to be so stoic about it. But inside I was it was really painful. And um I felt very fortunate in that it wasn't anything more than that. And I do have perspective. I recognize I'm otherwise a healthy person, and I think that's important, but I would be lying if I said it wasn't initially really hard and on some level embarrassing. But um, And the meniscus can be just so tough, too, because it's not like one of those injuries where, you know, you see this, like, very obvious, like, um, you know, like, before and after, or like a tangible, like, all right, this is what happened, and then this is the result. I feel like every meniscus story I've ever heard was kind of like, yeah, I got hurt. I wasn't sure what happened. <laughs> and like, it was just like, it was just like this weird feeling in my knee. Like it just seems so ephemeral in some ways. You're exactly right. In fact, it wasn't even painful. I didn't have any pain. And I think there are a lot of people who run regularly with a torn meniscus. And that was another level to this is that in addition to having to put a plan in place and dealing with all of the outside things I had just mentioned with pressure I put on myself and and just wanting to be able to complete my training and not being able to, I, I wasn't in pain. So I was confused initially as to what to do. Do I have a surgery or do I just kind of see how I feel and keep running like so many people do? And I was receiving a lot of different views on what to do. And long story short, after seeing several doctors and talking with um, a few different physical therapists, everyone agreed that in my case, based on how my MRI looked, it was 
a very important, it was very important for me to have the surgery. So that, and I want to, I want to take a deep dive on that too, Julia, if you don't mind me just hopping in, because I think this is important because this isn't as if it's like an ACL tear where like, of course, unless you're like of advanced age and maybe going into surgery is just harmful for your body in a way it can't bounce back from surgery for meniscus tears is not the, like the obvious solution necessarily. And I also just want to touch on like how this injury and surgery has changed over like the last couple decades because it really has just even touching on kind of like the first diagnosis that you got from the doctor who took the first look at your MRI. Yeah. So the doctor that gave me, that allowed me to, um, basically go into his office quickly and get a review because I couldn't even get an appointment right away. So side note, I was pretty aggressive because I knew I had six weeks and I knew I needed to make a decision as to whether to keep running on this knee um, where I did not have any pain, but I did, it did feel weak or to completely shut things down and have the surgery or to completely shut things down, wait and see and not have the surgery. And after talking with many different experts and receiving many different opinions, it seemed like once people saw my images from the MRI, it was clear that the way my tear um, presented, I needed to have the surgery. So first things first is MRIs are very valuable when it comes to knee injuries. And a lot of times it's hard to get an MRI. And I'm here to say, be, be assertive and be aggressive about getting what you need. But also I recognize insurance is difficult. So I think it's important to find the right doctor who's willing to understand that you are a runner and that you have certain needs that maybe someone else who isn't as active may not have because it doesn't present necessarily as an emergency, like a, like a, a, when an Achilles bursts or something like that, it's different. Um, So even just being able to get an idea of whether I needed the surgery in the first place was step one. And once that was definitive, the surgery, it was, it was a no brainer, but what was great was that I was able to wait a little bit to schedule my surgery. Um, So I waited until after Boston and that's because I wasn't in pain And also because I wanted to, number one, go to Boston and cheer on my runners and friends. And number two, I wanted to get in with a physical therapist and a trainer and do a lot of prehab on the area around my knee so that when I went in for surgery on May 1st, I was really, really strong. And let's touch a little bit on... um... What exactly that first doctor said to you, that offhanded comment that he made, I heard you reference in another podcast about your future as a marathoner when he first saw the the torn meniscus. So this is a doctor that a lot of people recommend and he's highly skilled and he took a look at my images and he said, well, I definitely wouldn't do marathons anymore. And it was really flippant and he certainly didn't mean any harm by it, but it, it occurred to me, and maybe it's because I'm older, I've been around enough doctors, I recognize that this isn't about how he personally feels about me, but he's just not the right doctor for me. This doctor doesn't understand that this is a huge part of my life and my identity, and this is something I will continue to do. So I need to find someone who recognizes what I need as a patient. So I thanked him because I really appreciated his opinion. I really did. And then I went on to another doctor and I ended up ultimately selecting a doctor in our area who um, said to me, 
that my knee was precious. And that sounds so cheesy, but at that moment, that's what I needed to hear because I knew that even if he was just as skilled as every other surgeon, because it's not a complicated surgery, um, I knew that he would recognize that the patient on whom he's operating is someone who really, really wants every bit of um, of my knee saved or salvaged. And I trusted him and it just made me so much more comfortable about my decision. So um, that's something I think is really important is recognizing that even if a doctor is recommended as the most skilled surgeon, if that doctor you feel isn't seeing you for what you personally need, there is another doctor out there that is also recommended as the most skilled surgeon. Right. Cause there's two things there that I think are important. Like you just mentioned, it's like finding the right doctor. And that doesn't mean necessarily like shopping around until you find someone who will tell you what you want to hear. Right. It's Correct. like, it's, it's finding that there, that there are basically reasonable people can differ on diagnosis and prognosis and things like that without it becoming like a complete fiction. And the other side of this too, is just how meniscuses have been dealt with in the past. Like a great example is my dad, used to be a runner. He had meniscus issues. Now they just took the whole thing out. And it's like, you know, it it was a catastrophe for him as an athlete. Cause it's like goodbye running. Like it's just, it's just not going to happen anymore. And I know for people who are in his age bracket, he, this happened to a lot of people where it was almost like, you know, surgeon's hubris led them to taking more, you know, more cartilage or, you know, out of the knee then was necessary. And then again, it was you know, a life altering decision and operation. Whereas like you mentioned, you know, that you know, having a doctor who was going to approach it with a little bit more empathy um, in regards to what you were doing as a person and an athlete really made all the difference. Huge difference. And I was comfortable because I knew that he would do everything he could to salvage my cartilage. And when I'm jumping ahead a little bit. When he operated on me and afterwards, he said he he went in and saw that my tear was actually, it was wrapped around my knee like a scarf, which is, he said, one of the most unusual tears he's ever seen. And he said that it was likely caused by a fall. And about a year ago, like so many of us, when we're super tired, I am sure this has happened to you, Matt, I, I fell on a run. I just kind of fell. And I didn't think anything of oh, it, I've but looking it, back. I've eaten it so many yes. times, Julie. I can't even tell you. I've like <laughs> in the woods, in the road, down yes. the stairs, like wherever. And it always happens, of course, when you least expect it, because if you would expect it, you would prevent yourself from falling. But it all, always seems to happen to me on a weekday morning when I am super tired and I'm shuffling. So that happened. And I very much believe that that was probably what precipitated it. And I was probably living with this for a while and it manifested during that run uh, before Boston. But um, that being said, when he finished the surgery and told me what he found and how he salvaged my knee and he said, you're going to be great. It brought me so much comfort. And I believe that his bedside manner, because so much of recovery is mental, gave me the confidence in knowing that, you know what, if I work my butt off, in my recovery and get what I like to call a PR in recovery, I'm going to be back. I'm going to do this. And I don't know if I would have had that mentality or that strength if I had a surgeon who didn't give me that confidence. Now, had you dealt with any significant running injuries in the past? 
I have had two in the past. Now I've been running, I started running right like during law school and probably um, about 25 years ago. I'm, I'm 47. So I've had three significant injuries, including this one. So I think that's a pretty good track record. So my first was a training error. Um, when I first started running marathons, I got a stress fracture and that was um, in my early 30s. And then in my early 40s, I had um, an Achilles tear, not a bur- not a serious, serious one, but one that took me out of Boston that year. And I had to rehab that and came back strong. And then this is my third injury. So I really learned through injury that really, for me at least, what builds your character as an athlete and what makes one a great athlete, it's not when things are going well. It's when things are going pretty crappy and how you respond to it. I think that is what really defines you is to what kind of athlete and person you are. So um, as much as I had a pity party for myself when initially I found out about this situation, I really, really try to channel that feeling I have, that belief I have into my recovery because we all have crappy situations in our life, but if we can try and figure out how to approach them in a meaningful way, even when we feel helpless, I very much believe that that, that helps us at the end of the day, look back on that situation and learn from it. And I'm not saying it's all roses, like it's hard, but I think if we can try and approach things like injury with intention and purpose and take some steps that we can control to um, target the things we need to work on, I really believe that that makes a huge difference in how we recover and how we approach running after we've recovered. And you're a very driven, goal-oriented person. And with that in mind, when did you start having the conversations with your your doctors and the other professionals that you were working with regarding a timeline for recovery? Um, you know, I think the doctor right away was like, "You'll you'll be able to start walk running in six to eight weeks." And, um, and you had a, I, I started, say, you had a you had a May first surgery, right? Correct. So, um. So what happened was I I had the tear in March. I waited until May 1st because I wanted to go to Boston and cheer on everyone and be there as a spectator. Um, And then after that, two weeks later, I had the surgery. So I knew that as soon as I had it, I had to start taking steps to recover. And that included all of the regular things like ice and stuff like that, compression. But it also meant, what what can I do right now? And I found a great PT in my area. I, I worked with two PTs. They were both fantastic. And the one in my area that I started work, working with right away, um, they do something called um, blood flow restriction therapy, BFR, which is um, not super new, but it's a little bit new to our area. They do it a lot out in Colorado. And what it is, is it, it they take like a, a, it's almost like a blood pressure cuff around the area below, above your injury. So it'd be like around your um, quad and they cut off temporarily circulation And then the idea is by having you do some exercises without any weight, you feel like you're doing a little bit of strength training to the area around the injured area by cutting off circulation. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm describing it very well. It makes sense. It sounds sounds wild. (laughs) It It is kind of weird. At the same time, it makes sense. 
Yeah. So I did some research and um, I found this modality and I thought, well, who does it? And I found um, a PT place in our area, rehab to perform that does it. And it was really, I felt like it was helpful. It helped me get stronger faster, I think, than if I had been doing sort of regular mini squats and things like that, that they have you doing right away on my own. Um, it was painful a little bit, but I, I really didn't mind because, you know what, training can be painful too. I mean, we all have to do hard things in training. And I looked at this as part of my training and it gave me something to do productively to go to PT and, and get this moving and get this going. And at the same time, I was able to get on a bike pretty quickly after the doctor um, encouraged me to, to get blood flow to my knee quickly. And uh, stationary bikes are great for that. And just no impact, no no resistance, rather. Just got on the bike. And the first time I got on that bike, about three days after my surgery, it was super, super hard. But it was really, um, again, it gave me something to do, something proactive to start getting that PR and recovery. And like you said, um, putting a, a plan in place to achieve a goal. Um, I didn't really think about running that much until probably six weeks out. I went to the doctor and he said, you can start to walk, run. I waited another week after that because I did not quite feel comfortable walk running yet. Even though he gave me permission to, I knew my body and I just wasn't in a hurry to try it until I felt confident. So I waited another week. So I think I waited seven weeks and I went out with my son, who's um, also a runner, and he kept me company, and we did a little 15-minute walk run, and it felt really hard, but really great, and also very humbling. Um, I knew I had a lot of work to do, and um, I felt really um, excited to be moving my feet on the ground, but also understanding that it would be a long road, and that was in um, mid-May. I'm sorry, in mid actually late June, late June. So that's kind of where I was after the surgery. And um, do you want me to talk about what I did next or? Yeah. So I think it's important to understand because we've already let, we've already talked about, you know, like the punchline, like you, you just ran 338, yeah. you know, uh, early September in a marathon to now qualify again for Boston. And while that wasn't a PR, that also is a huge achievement. So at what point in the process, did you start feeling comfortable about projecting forward about, you know, okay, is it possible for me to be Q again in this cycle, knowing that, you know, you're kind of going up against it from a scheduling perspective? So I, what I did was I, after my injury, while I was in Boston, I was talking with my partner, Lisa, and she is such she's such a cheerleader for me. And she said, you know, you should just sign up for a race the last possible weekend, you know, worst case scenario, you lose the, the fee. Why not? And I decided to, while in Boston, I registered for this race, the last chance to BQ.2 in Geneva, Illinois, because it's a goofy loop course of, I think, 3.4 miles, eight times or something like that. And that way I had in my head, if I tried it, if I didn't feel well, I could get off the course. It sounds insane, but it made sense for an injured runner. And then I kind of put it out of my head and I didn't want to pressure myself because worst case scenario, I don't do it. I didn't want to 
give myself a timeline, but I liked the fact that it was out there for me in the event that things went really well. So after I was given permission to walk run, I incrementally increased the running and decreased the walking um, the next two weeks. And then by July, I was able to comfortably run three to five miles uh, at a very easy pace. And I think that's because I had a great base. I was already very strong because I was working with my, um, my trainer. I was working with PT and I was also doing a, and this is key, I was doing a lot of cross training on an indoor bike. And I think that is super important because that kept my endurance up. Um, I wasn't killing myself. I wasn't standing on the bike, but it felt really good um, on my knee. And it also felt really great cardiovascular, cardiovascularly to get my heart rate up. So all of those things combined, the strength and the cardio made running, the transition to running pretty easy for me. And the surgery, thank goodness, I didn't have any issues. So it was just about me controlling myself and not incrementally building too quickly, but also recognizing that in some ways we're all an experiment of one and that comes to recovery. And maybe for someone else, it wouldn't have worked to increase our minutes of running as much as I did. But for me, it worked. And I very much believe it was because I had a big base from training for Boston when my injury happened and it hadn't been that long. So um, I incrementally can I, built... can I hop in right? Yeah, in right go ahead. There? Because I think this is an issue that um, happens to a lot of people in a similar circumstance um, in terms of if you're able to cross train at a high level while you're recovering from an injury that's stopping you from really embracing running, the issue then for a lot of people can be like that their aerobic base is so far ahead of where their body is that when they get back into running, it's so easy to overdo it because your engine is still like raring to go, but like you're, you know, you're to, to, to keep this car metaphor going, I guess, <laughs> but your, your tire still isn't completely inflated. So you don't want to necessarily, you know, push to your aerobic capacity, even if it's just from an easy running perspective, because your body can't necessarily align itself with those demands and finding that sweet spot of like continuing to improve aerobically while still kind of nurturing um, your body, uh, in a sense, so you're not taking, you know, one step forward and then then another step backwards, you know, a couple of weeks later. I think that's an awesome point. And similarly, you want to watch out for compensation issues where, you know, one side of your body that wasn't injured is raring to go and is compensating for the body that the side of the body that's weaker. So you're absolutely right. And that's why it's super important when returning to running from injury that you not only listen to your body, um, but you also are smart about it and recognize that you can't run consecutive days initially. I never ran consecutive days. Use that cross training. Don't abandon it once you're given the green light to run, but keep doing it. And um, that you're so right because I felt cardiovascularly very strong and it would have been very easy for me to keep going, especially on a beautiful day to just keep going instead of going into my basement and getting on my bike. But it really helped, I think, to be able to, to modify and recognize that the long game is for me to come back healthy. And while, yeah, I could have run another mile, it's so much better to leave some out there and and stop and know that I can save it for the next run and just keep incrementally increasing and doing it in a way that doesn't compromise 
um, my body, which isn't quite as strong as my lungs and my heart <laughs> do the cross training. So you're absolutely right. Right. And then how hard did that, how hard was it for you to balance that knowledge with the reality of like, Hey, but I want to get better. And Hey, like I just had a couple of good days in a row and I, maybe I'm feeling better now. Or like just being a coach and having that, that, you know, even, even though it's probably just internalized and not a real pressure of making sure that you're kind of performing at a high level because you're also telling people how they can perform at a high level. That's such a great point. I think for me, I, I know that inevitably people, people often ask how I'm doing and it was really, I really appreciated the support in my community and beyond. And it was sort of like, for me, I felt like, well, if, if all these people, my family and friends are going to support me, I want to be able to put out there my story and show that I did everything I could to be smart. So for me, my motivation was by virtue of me being a coach and, and caring so much about my running personally and caring so much about the runners we coach to make sure they see that I can do hard things like them. I wanted to model the best possible recovery I could so that they could see that if you do things right, it can work. Now I can't control always how my body responds to things. And I had some days where I felt exhausted after a run. And when that happened, I took that cue and I would take two days off from running instead of religiously doing every other day of whatever run I decided to do, I would take two days off. And I think that is really important because we hear this all the time and it's worth repeating. Progress is not linear when it comes to injury. And one day you may feel great. And then the next day you may feel like crap, but that doesn't mean you're not progressing. It just means your body is responding to what you did the day before, maybe a little bit differently than what you anticipated. So therefore we have to respond to that differently than what we anticipated and change the plan. So it was hard for me, but at the same time, I really was determined to listen to my body and take cues from my body. And I was also determined to appreciate that I had the opportunity to cycle. And rather than looking at cycling as something that was limiting my running and taking me away from running, I looked at the cycling and I still do as something to complement my running. And I am going to continue to use cycling as a complement to my running because I really very much believe that that has specifically allowed me to bounce back quickly and stay healthy is by every other day running and intermittently cycling in between. So you basically had, um, excluding the taper time, um, about, about a two-month build to get ready for, yes. for the marathon in Geneva. So before we touch on what exactly that looked like, what did it look like when you were preparing for um, Boston 2019 um, just, from a, just, just from a comparison perspective when we look at what you did this summer? Okay. So generally when I train for Boston, I do like everyone else, a long run. I tend to do my long runs um, on Thursday mornings because that works for my family. And I throw in tempo usually every couple of long runs um, to do sort of a race simulation run. And then I do one other key workout a week, whether it's a speed workout or a tempo workout. So I, I tend to not do any more than two key workouts a week. And then the rest of the week, I was running about, um, my peak mileage was between 45, just under 50. And I usually do about four to five days of running um, couple, uh, one day of cross training, one day of rest. 
Um, so I'm not a high mileage runner. And I, again, I'm, I'm a master's runner. So I know my body and I know that for me, that's what works. When I was um, in my 30s, I tried to get closer to 60 miles per week. And that worked for me then. But, you know, we have to adjust as we get older and as we run for more and more years. So that's what it looked like for me. And I also do a lot of racing. So even during the marathon cycle, I'm on a competitive racing team locally. I like to race. So I'll turn a 5K to a 10-miler distance into a long run on a Saturday occasionally where I'll do, you know, three, let's say it's a 10 I'll do a three or four mile warm up, race the 10K, and then add um, some miles after to get to whatever designated long run distance I was doing that weekend. And that was another way to fit in a key workout, but also get that out there and test my fitness. That's what my training generally looks like before Boston each year. So what would be, like, so just looking at that last cycle, what was the range for an easy pace run? What was the kind of marathon pace that you thought that you were probably going to run at Boston if everything had kind of come to fruition? So um, my easy pace runs are everything, but generally I, I can run, if I'm really tired, my easy pace runs are as slow as 10 minute miles. If I'm feeling really perky at five in the morning, five thirty in the morning, my easy pace runs can be eight forty five to nine. It always depends. But I'm really diligent about just going by feel and running very easy on the easy days. And then my race pace generally that I was practicing was around seven forty five. And um I did a 10 mile race about a week before my injury where I, um, my time was, I think either 110 or 111, somewhere around there on a hilly course. So I was in, I was in good shape. Like my LT pace was around seven minute miles and my 5k pace was around 645. So I was definitely in, in good shape to race a marathon. And, and, um, that's just sort of been my sort of paces for quite some time. And I'm a big believer in running easy runs, super easy. So you can see like my easy run paces, sometimes 10 minute miles, yet my LT paces or lactate threshold paces, seven minute miles. I just think for me that really works. Um, so for this training cycle, which I don't even know what, if I would call it a full cycle, um, my easy pace runs were similar um, anywhere between on a hot day, 9.45, 10 minute miles on a cooler day, 8.45 to nine minute miles. I did no speed work at all. And all I did was um, a long run on the weekend. So do you want me to talk about what I did yet or? Yeah. I mean, before we get into that, I just want to, I want to reiterate a point that you made regarding your, um, your, kind of your, your more established, kind of your, your normal marathon training log, because you know, you talked about running 45 to 50 miles a week, but then you also made made the disclaimer of like, I've been doing this for a long time. And that's huge because you look at someone like can run 45, 50 miles a week and only do it for, for in, I shouldn't say only, but say they do it for four months preceding that they were doing 20 miles a week. It's totally different ball game. Like getting that mileage over a long period of time. I feel like this cannot be overemphasized enough. It's not just simply what you do in a marathon training cycle that leads you into what you're able to do in the marathon. It's just a race that needs so that that can benefit you to have so much more uh, miles in your legs to prepare you for that race, as opposed to just what you're doing in a cycle. I totally agree. I think that's a great point because it's, it really is cumulative mileage and your body has muscle memory and can absorb mileage 
But conversely, I think it can also work against you because there are plenty of older runners who haven't been running for as long as me and their legs may be fresher and may be able to absorb, you know, a 50 mile week that I could absorb in my 30s that I'm not able to absorb as well in my 40s. So I think it's not just about longevity and running and age, but I think it's also about longevity and running period. Because regardless of age, if you've only been running for a few years and you're starting to get those cycles under your belt and you're starting to get better and better, don't worry about your age. If you don't have that many miles or years of running behind you and you're doing great, keep it up. But recognize that we all need to assess every few years and say, you know what, is this training plan working for me? Is this something that's working for my life right now? And it may not even have to do with age or years of running. It may have to do with your kids' schedules or your work schedule. And it's okay to change it and to adjust your mileage or adjust how you structure your workouts to work best for where you are in your life right now. And I think that's really important. So the big difference, um, besides just like obviously coming back from the the, the injury, was your decision in your um, in your summer marathon build was it just to eliminate the speed work. So let's talk about that first in terms of your decision to do that and how that helped you um, long term uh, over the course of that over the course of that cycle. Okay, so first of all, I feel like it's I would be I feel like it's generous to call it a summer marathon build because I'll be honest, I didn't make the decision that I was going to go do this marathon until about a week and a half before. I had been Whoa. preparing for it mentally. I had been preparing for it mentally, but I didn't commit to it because for two reasons. Number one, I didn't want to put pressure on myself to to create a narrative that didn't exist. Because if I put myself in a position where I was going to force myself to do a race that I had paid, you know, 60 bucks for back in April, just because I wanted to have a narrative where I qualified for Boston 2020, I could have hurt myself. So what I did was I built up my training and looked at it more like, I'm going to try this each week and see how I feel. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to step it back. But I, I never put that pressure on myself until about the week before where I said, I think I'm going to do it. And my family knew that I was thinking about it and my close friends knew, but I kept it pretty close to the vest because I just felt it was important that I recover based on my body's timeline and not what I wanted to do in my head. And if it worked out, fabulous. But if it didn't, I didn't want to push myself into a situation that would compromise my health. So how did you approach your long runs then in terms of scheduling them and figuring out like what your body was capable of while also, you know, kind of understanding that if things go well, like this marathon is, is a potential reality. So what I did was after I had been running steadily every other day, um, for about, about an hour each time, I would just add on minutes to each run. So instead of thinking about it as mileage, I would just say, well, today I'm going to go out for an hour and 10 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes. And I was doing about four runs a week and cycling on the other days with one rest day. And um, each run was anywhere between an hour and um, two and a half hours. And I didn't get the two and a half hours until I had built from it. So my long, my first long run was an hour and 20 minutes. 
And then um, each week I would add on 10 more minutes. And eventually I hit uh, 16 miles. I felt fine. So the next week I moved it up and I added 20 more minutes and I hit 18 miles. So in my head, while it's the same thing, whether I'm running by minutes or miles, it felt more comfortable for me to think of everything in terms of time on my feet versus mileage. And so I did one 20 miler um, and I did that in August and it was hard, but the next day I had no pain and I knew that I was in a good place at that point. And I was still working with um, my other PT, Rachel Miller, and I was also working with my strength trainer, my friend Eric, and together they were giving me the confidence and knowing that I wasn't hurting myself and I was really strong. So the strength training was really key as well because I was using the right muscles to run. I wasn't running. You know how sometimes when we shuffle in our runs, we tend not to use our glutes and that can lead to injuries in other areas. I was working on that a lot because I knew that my glutes are my powerhouse and it was really critical that I had great form if I was going to try this. So I worked a lot on that while running these easy runs and thinking about that a lot, my form, instead of thinking about my speed. And in terms of taking speed work out, it wasn't an option for me. There was just no way that I could do any kind of speed while increasing the mileage exponentially that I was doing. And so I just decided it was not even an option. And I didn't want to do speed work. It wasn't something I felt comfortable doing. And just doing the mileage was plenty. And then to develop my lactate threshold pace, which I think is a key pace for runners um, in racing, especially at the end of a marathon, I, I used the bike. And I would do deliberate workouts on my bike, on my stationary bike, that allowed me to really push my my pace and get my heart rate up there into that zone that ordinarily my lactate threshold pace would be in. So like if I do a 10 mile race, I know generally what my heart rate is in during a 10 mile race. And that's what I would try and get my heart rate up to in a cycling session um, for an hour. And that was sort of what my speed work was, but it was on a bike. And I don't know if scientifically that did anything for me, but it sure felt like it helped. And it gave me, again, some confidence in knowing that I had fitness, not just in doing long runs slowly, but also in being able to push myself um, into uncomfortable zones. So when you were getting ready for race day and planning your strategy and you know, getting, just doing all the things that we all do going for a race, how did you determine what would be um, an appropriate marathon pace for you? So that's a great question. So um, I knew in... I knew that I'm 47 again. I think I've said it like three times, but this is relevant only because my age is that I had to get a 350 uh, qualifying time to qualify for Boston. And um, that really is a 345, as we all know, because of the the way uh, BQs work these days. So a 345 time is about an 830 piece. So I knew in my head that if that felt relatively easy to me, um, testing it out on a couple of runs for uh, bites at a time, that I would be in, in decent shape to try and do a marathon at an 8.30 pace. And just a caveat, that's generally very close to my 
long, slow distance pace on a really nice, cool day. So it wasn't a far stretch for me to try that. And I also served as a pacer at a local half marathon, the Parks Half Marathon, in early September. Um, it's something I do every year. And I was a pacer for um, a finish time of 150, which is about 8 20 pace. I felt it felt very easy to me. And that's a really hilly, hard course. And I, I wasn't even feeling like it was too much of an effort, except just focusing on making sure I paced people properly and didn't lead them out too fast or anything like that. So I knew if the weather was good, I would have the fitness to try. And so my plan was for race day, um, this race, again, is loops. And I, I really appreciated that for my purposes, because I knew that if at any point in that race, I did not feel comfortable beyond just running a marathon, which is always uncomfortable, I could get off the course. And that provided me with a lot of comfort and knowing that I could be smart and not put my body in a precarious situation. And so that's what I did. Um, the week before I decided to do it, um, just for logistics purposes, my family lives in Chicago, so it wasn't like a huge stretch to go out there. Um, and I was happy to see them anyway. That was just a cherry on top. So it wasn't crazy that I was going to Chicago from DC to do this. And um, I just decided I would give it a try. And I told very few people, but those who I told, it brought me comfort because they didn't think I was crazy. They said, of course, you'll do it. And it, I was the one that was wondering, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. But um, with the blessing of my PT and um, Lisa, my partner, and, and my family, I felt like I was in a good place to try. And another thing that's key is I was mentally prepared to do it and also mentally prepared to not do it. In other words, I knew the worst case scenario would be I'd get off the course and all I was doing was trying, so what if I failed? And I think that's, for me, was really important to recognize that what's the worst case scenario? Nothing. I'm no worse off than when I started. So um, I started carb loading a few days before and uh, mentally preparing for that part of it. And I uh, had a lot of sushi because that's what I like to do to carb load. And um, just thought a lot about mentally picturing myself running those loops on the flat course and picturing myself just trying to do the bare minimum to qualify for Boston and doing that 8.30 pace steadily. And um, I flew out there on Friday morning, last Friday, and I felt very at peace with my decision and felt like I was going to do something that I enjoyed. And I really tried to look at it as a privilege and how fortunate I was that I was even in a position to try it. And I think that also served me well because I was very calm when the race started. And that morning, I wasn't freaking out. I wasn't worried. I was just calm and thought, I'm excited to give this a try. Worst case scenario, I don't finish. Big deal. And it, it, that's how I tried to, to stay during the entire race. And Chicago is very flat as opposed to where um, I live in the D.C. area. So an 830 pace on a more hilly route feels, I guess, a little bit more like an 820 on a flat route. Because when I started clocking my miles, I kept hitting 820 without looking at my watch in between. It just kept saying 820, 820. And I thought, well, that's just where I am today and I'll keep doing it. So um, that's what I did. And I tried to just keep keep myself very calm and keep my heart rate at that level that I knew was um, sort of between 
a long, slow distance run and a little bit more. And most importantly, I was eating all the things. I'm a big believer in um, doing nutrition very well during a marathon and, and really honing that in. I think that's a game changer. And I'm I'm a real disciplined eater <laughs> during a marathon. And I'm happy to share what I do. Um, I think that too was key for me. And it was hard. I mean, the last mile, I, I just was like, where is the, where is the mile marker? When does this end? But when I finished, I felt so incredibly excited and just thrilled that it worked out and lucky because the weather was great. And I'm, I know I'm lucky and I know that things worked out very well for me. And I know it may not always work out this way, but I am super grateful that it happened the way it did. And I registered for Boston and I'll be there in 2020, not spectating, but running. And I'm super, super thrilled. Yeah, that is fantastic. And as a veteran of marathons, what is the approach that you like to take and that you advise your clients to take and say like the first, and this is just an arbitrary number, but say like the first five miles of a marathon in terms of how they should feel and how they should run relative to whatever goal, not goal pace, but whatever their, their marathon pace may be. Just what, what is your just general advice for people? Because, hey, we're about to enter marathon season for a lot of, a lot of folks who are listening to this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Lisa and I have been huge advocates of looking at a marathon as a 20-mile, uncomfortable long run followed by a six-mile race, 6.2-mile race. And what we mean by that is that if you are really smart and strategic about your first 20 miles, your, your overall race will be a lot better than if you try to bank miles and then do the march of death to the finish line for the last 6.2. And that's that's common sense. Most seasoned marathoners know that. But to put that plan into place, we like to tell people to really think of the first five miles, uh, first 5K rather, as a warm-up. Uh, generally, when I go for a run, my first mile or two or three feels pretty crappy, especially when I run really early in the morning. It's my warm-up. I need time to warm up, and I run really slowly, and then I get into the groove. So why would that be any different on race day? We're certainly not going to go out before a marathon and run some miles to warm up. So our warm-up is the first 5K, and we should treat it that way. And that doesn't mean going super slow, but uh, we always advise people to go about 10 seconds slower than their goal marathon pace for at least the first 5K. Take the time to settle in. Don't surge. Don't like try to scamper around people, you know, when it's when it's a little bunchy at the beginning, but just stay calm, stay relaxed and try really hard to not exert any extra energy and nervous energy when you're running because that takes up calories. It takes up energy. And we really believe also in having people start eating all the things pretty quickly into the marathon because our digestive systems are working pretty well early on, not working so well later on because, you know, your blood, your body is working so hard and your blood has to pump to different areas. But at the beginning of a race, your body isn't working as hard. So that's a great time to take in calories. So um, I personally... I, I'm old-fashioned. I used gels. I know a lot of people like to use other things other than gels. They certainly don't taste great. I recognize that. But for me, that's what gives me the most bang for my buck. So I take a gel religiously every 35 minutes. So for my race, at, even though I had no desire to eat, 35 minutes, I took my first gel and I really 
continue that every single time thereafter. Um, I personally like vanilla goo gels. That's what works for me. But whatever it is that works for someone that they can tolerate, I think that is the best nutrition. Some people really like you can. I think if that works for you, that's awesome. But for me, I like having the sugar works for me. It always has. Um, so that's what I do every 35 minutes. I take a salt tab every hour. If the temperature is above 50 degrees, I take a salt tab every hour. And then um, in between taking nutrition, I switch Gatorade. I can't always swallow it because it ends up sloshing a little bit in my stomach. But even just swishing, um, as you know, scientific studies show that that can be just as impactful. So I try to at least do that if I can't tolerate swallowing a cup of water um, at a water stop. I always take Gatorade. I don't really use water except with my nutrition. And the other thing I do, which I really think helps, and maybe this is controversial, but I I'm a big believer in coffee or some form of caffeine before a marathon. I, I really think it's a, it's, it's, it's a legal benefit that I think we could all benefit from, um, a legal substance. For sure. I mean, and, and to the point where it wasn't always legal. Yes. I mean, it used to be on the banned supplement list, which is kind of funny to think about all the crazy stuff that's out there now to think that caffeine used to be on the banned list. But totally. It, it's, it's, it's true. It used to be. Totally. So yeah, so that's what I do. And I also eat a lot of carbs before the race too. I, I, uh, I, I know it's hard, but if, if, if you've practiced with it, I think it really is effective to get a lot of grams of carbs. Uh, I usually try to get in about 150 to 200 grams of carbs. And there are certain foods that are high in carb, but not as heavy on the stomach, including dates. So if you're, you can tolerate dates, those are a great pre-marathon um, source of carbs. Oatmeal, of course, is a standard great source of carbs. And um, just adding some honey to your oatmeal adds a little bit more, adding a little bit of banana. So there's some creative ways that one can get a little bit more carbs in without having to stuff, you know, three bagels in you or something like that, which for me would never work. So I think the biggest thing, though, is practicing. So if anyone listening is thinking about changing your fueling plan, I think it's okay to change it, but just to make sure that you not only practice it on a long run, but practice it on a long run when you're also running fast for some of the miles on the long run, because there is a big difference between running easy and running a little bit faster when taking in nutrition. That is great advice. I love that. Um, all right. Last thing before we get going, and thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your story and your expertise. But last thing is, what did you learn from your injury recovery that you're going to utilize now that you're healthy and you know in the future when you're healthy that isn't necessarily something that you'd quantify as something simply for injury recovery and just, you know, part of just being a healthy and vibrant athlete? I think for me, what I've learned from my injury recovery and from any time um, I've been injured the, the three different times is that how I respond to an injury defines me as an athlete so much more than my times or um, what I've done in a race. Because at the end of the day, no one cares. My family doesn't care. Nobody cares about my time. They care how I am as a person and what I've done um, to respond to hard things. And I think when you go through hard times, even when it's something as simple as an injury compared to something really devastating, an injury is not. 
we can recover from that. And I realize that. But how we respond to those, I think those skills are what makes us stronger people. And those skills can carry over into other aspects of life. And, and that's what defines us as, you know, that's what defines our character. It's how we respond to those hard times, not how we respond to things when things are easy for us. Wonderful. Julie, how can people learn more about you and your, uh, your, you know, I want to say running business, your coaching business, because it's much more than that. But how can people learn more about it? Thanks for asking. Um, Lisa and I can be found at Run Farther and Faster on Instagram and Facebook and runfartherandfaster.com. And um, Matt, I just want to thank you for having me because I love your podcast. I've learned so much from it. And I also want to thank you for everything you've done specifically for the women's running community. You have just really um, spotlight highlighted so many amazing women runners. And I just give you so much kudos for that. And I appreciate all that you've done. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Wow. Thank you so much, Julie. I really appreciate that. And, I, and, and truth be told, the, the episodes that I have with women are listened to far more the episodes I have with men. So they, I believe they it. Definitely, <laughs> so, so I don't know what that says about anything, but it, but it definitely is true. So, all right. Thanks again. Thank you. Julie, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute blast. I had so much fun uh, talking with you. Also, big ups to our sponsors, Megaton Coffee and Tune Up CBD. Make sure you visit them. Check them out if you don't already. I drink Megaton coffee every morning, and Tune Up CBD has been very useful, not only in terms of what I use for use it for throughout the year, but with my recent injury uh, to my ankle, which I've been using the uh, the extra strength balm on my right ankle, and it's really helped. So thank you to Tune Up CBD. Also, thank you to everybody for listening, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. I really appreciate it. So again, thank you so much, and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.